God is good all the time. Welcome to week seven of Jesus of Nazareth, or as he would have been called in the Aramaic language of his time, Yeshua Nazareth. In the series, we're exploring the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Our task is to hear these words as they were originally spoken. To get all the political lenses that we tend to walk around with, to absolutely get rid of those, to get the Americanization of the gospel out of the way. I want to just look at Jesus, what he said in the context in which he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Though Jesus' teachings are certainly not bound by time and space, Jesus spoke in a very specific time from a very specific place. Circa AD 30, Galilee region of Israel. It was under Roman occupation. If you were standing where Jesus grew up today, you would be wondering if missiles were coming your way. This is where Jesus was raised. Jesus opened the Sermon on the Mount by instructing that the more out of control our lives seem to be, the more blessed we become because we are acutely aware of our need for God. The more out of control the world seems to be, the more blessed we are because we are acutely aware of our need for God. Jesus then challenged his followers to be what's good in the world. Be what's good in the world. In a world that's radiating at high frequencies and completely out of control, we are called to be what is good in the world. And then he declared himself to be the fulfillment of the law of Moses. The next sections dealt with anger, adultery, divorce, vows, revenge, and loving your enemies. Jesus handled them all identically. He started with the teaching of Moses and then he upped the bar to the level of hyperbole. Jesus' message is always this. Religion can't save you, but I can. That's always his message. Religion can't save you. There's no way you can perfectly navigate the rules and regulations of religion. And even if you think you can, I'm going to push the bar so high, you're going to have no illusions left that you can make this work. Religion can't save you, but I can. Then he pivots and he hits the three legs of the stool of the great concepts of Jewish religious life. Giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. In all of these, he assumes that his followers are regularly adhering to all three of these disciplines. So what he does is question their motives and then reminds them that if they are obedient to God, if they do the right things for the right reasons, they will receive God's rewards. Since we've already dealt with prayer and fasting, today we're going to look at giving to the poor. And then we're going to tie all three together. And it's going to lead us, leave us to a, at a crossroads. In Jesus' day, there's only one temple. It's in Jerusalem. There's one temple, but there's synagogues all over the Roman Empire. In fact, archaeologists are constantly finding 
first century synagogues. Jews were spread all throughout the diaspora. Any community that had 10 Jewish families or more, you would have a synagogue. They were everywhere. So you might think of the temple as micro or macro and the synagogues as micro. If you worship here on Sundays, but you're also involved in a small group, a house group or something like that, what you do here is macro, what you do there is micro. Temple, macro, synagogues, micro. We know that people tithed. Tithe literally means 10%. So they gave of their first fruits, their first 10% to support the temple and support the synagogues. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He assumes that people do that. He's talking about what happens on top of that. And specifically, he's talking about giving to the poor. Not just any poor, but the poor people who literally lined the entrance to the temple and to the synagogues. They were folks that came looking for a handout. They called money generally alms back then. So the practice was called the giving of alms. I want you to understand that this was a regular part of life when you went to worship. You know how when you go to a baseball game or some places you go in the city and, and more and more in the suburbs, there are places that you go and you know there will be people who are begging. And if you go there often enough, they become familiar. They, they just become familiar. And dealing with those folks is actually quite public because there's people around, there's people walking, probably a lot of the same people every time. And how we deal with that is seen. In Jesus' day, when you went to church, if you will, uh, the sidewalks would have been lined with people who were begging. And it would have been expected, seen as good religion, if the folks going in would offer something to them. That is what Jesus is talking about. This teaching is in response to that reality. Verse 1. Don't let your good deeds publicly, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired. All of these interactions were public. There was no such thing as a social net. And if extended family wouldn't or couldn't care for somebody who was sick, disabled, mentally unstable, or too old to work, it simply reduced them to beggars. If righteous people and the temple and the synagogues didn't help these folks, they literally starved. It was just that simple. So if you had a good heart, love for God, and could afford to help, you did. And people admired you for it. I don't know about you, but I find such interactions when people na navigate them well to be admirable, don't you? One of the things I love about my wife, Melissa, is, and, and I saw this from the time we just started dating, how well she treats people who could never do anything for her. In my mind, it's a real judge of character. It doesn't say a thing about them. It says everything about you. Melissa always treats everybody really, really well. And I know that when it comes to dealing with folks who, who might be begging or that type of thing, how we treat those people says something about us, doesn't it? 
says something about us. And if we encounter those same people over and over, there gets to be some sort of, of a rapport, if, if you will. People who are gracious, who have warmth in their humanity. Uh, even if they feel like giving these people money would actually be destructive to these people and they don't give them money. They, people who are still kind, I, I find that to be virtuous. And they did in Jesus' day as well. Jesus says in verse 2, and when you give, don't call attention to yourself like the hypocrites. Giving to the poor was a choice to treat folks compassionately. And folks who could never do anything for you. To offer assistance was viewed as faith and action. It was viewed as good religion. But there were people that did so with some fanfare. Have you ever known anybody that was happy to do good, but they really weren't going to do good unless there was a camera around? That's what he's talking about. You know, somebody that says, oh, I want to help this poor person. Can you get out your video? Can you get out your camera and film it? We'll post it. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about people that have to have fanfare to do something good. He calls them hypocrites. Hypocrite's an interesting word. It literally denotes an actor, more specifically a mask that an actor would wear. It was really originally kind of neutral. It just said, these are actors. Well, what do actors do? Actors portray someone else. Actors are seen to love the spotlight. If you didn't like being up in front of people, you're not going to be an actor. And there was a negative connotation. Some people try to portray themselves as someone they are not. Specifically in the context of religion as being better than they are. They're not just trying to do good. They're trying to leverage that good into some type of win for themselves. And Jesus calls those people hypocrites. They're doing something good, but they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart or their love for God. They're doing it in a grandstanding way. Jesus is just saying, giving to the poor is a good thing. Just watch your motives. And make sure you do the right things for the right reasons. Fair enough. Verse 3. In fact, don't, your le- don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is hyperbole. Obviously, it's impossible. But Jesus, again, is making his point. The idea is to be so low-key about the good that you do that you barely realize it's happening yourself. When you give, to be so low-key about it, you you barely realize it's happening yourself. When you show generosity, to be so low-key about it, it just seems to be how you naturally interact. Why? Verse 4. Give in secret and your Father will reward you. The Greek word translated reward is apachin, and it means paid in full. It's a business term. So if you and I have a business transaction, you have a good, I take that good, I give you the amount of money we agreed on, I would get a bill of sale. Apachin, it's paid in full. That deal is over. It has been completed. And what Jesus is saying is that when we do things in a grandstanding way, maybe we'll get what we're after. But if we do, that deal's been completed. But if we do it to honor God and we do it in secret, we will be rewarded from God. Epichain. You get it once. You get paid once, either by the admiration of people or the affirmation of God. 
For Jesus, giving, prayer, and fasting are intrinsically linked. They're each a form of self-denial that opens up the door for God's work to happen within us. How many of you fasted with me last Monday? A lot of us did this. And what I asked you to do was to do something Jesus assumed we'd already be doing, but we really don't, right? Sometimes you just got to wear that. And sometimes we don't fast because we say, well, you know, if I can't give up food for 40 straight days, I'm not going to fast. Well, stop that. We just gave up something. Some people just gave up coffee or gave up social media or something. But the idea is to break your routine. It's, it's to break your routine for the purpose of creating space. And in that space, we give God an opportunity to move. Some of you fasted from something on Friday. You broke up your routine. And I got innumerable responses from people saying, hey, this actually worked. I broke up my routine and every time I wanted a cup of coffee, I prayed. I prayed for Israel and I prayed for Christ Church and I prayed for a need in my life. Breaking my routine reminded me to lean into God and to pray. God fills those spaces. And when we engage in those kind of disciplines, we get a heightened sense of God's presence in our lives. Just a heightened sense. When I was down in Georgia, I had breakfast with my friend Jody Ray, and one of the people at breakfast asked him a really fascinating question. They said, Jody, you have a lot of good stories. Do more interesting things happen to you than normal people? Or... Is there something else going on? And he actually had a quick response for it. He said, you know, 90% of our lives are lived in the routine. We just do what we do. We've got a routine. We run it. We run the offense. We run the template. He said, I try to create 10% of my life that disrupts the routine. And he said, in those routine disruptions is where great things happen. It's where the stories happen. It's where God steps in. When we fasted on Monday, we, we broke up our routine, created space for God, and God filled that space. And it's a reminder that when we do things Jesus' way, we'll get Jesus' results. Through giving, we sacrifice our love of money. Through prayer, we crucify selfishness. And through fasting, we break from our addiction to food and routine. These three acts of piety crucify false gods within us. They keep us examining our motives. They help us stay in right relationship with God. Acts of piety, prayer, fasting, giving, align us, create space within us for God to move. And now Jesus is going to offer some practical advice. Verse 19, don't store up treasures here on earth. In a previous home, we had an eccentric neighbor pass away. We had seen her on occasion, but not much. Never had seen anybody visit her. And then her family came in to clean things up and to sell the house. They could not believe what they saw. They were so astounded, they invited us to come and take a look. They said, come and look at mom's house. 
it was tunnels. I mean, there was junk from the floor to the ceiling. You literally walked through that house in tunnels. It was unbelievable. But now that our neighbor was dead, it's sort of like that whole thing going on was suddenly exposed for what it was. All of these things with which she couldn't bear to part were just junk. And they pulled dumpsters up. And all of these things that must have seemed like treasures to her were simply thrown away. The primary feature of Jesus' teaching is to help us see the difference between worthless things and things of true value. To see the difference between temporal and eternal things. Jesus helps us get perspective. Being a historian and a baseball fan, I have a small collection of baseball cards. Signed baseballs, a little bit of memorabilia, Hall of Fame players, 40s, 50s, 60s, a few from the 30s. People sometimes ask, how many baseball cards do you have? And I will tell them, you are missing the entire point. This is not a high-volume enterprise. I've got a few baseball cards, and they're really, really good baseball cards. A couple of decades back, I had a baseball card out. And I was just kind of looking at and admiring it, because why have baseball cards if you're going to keep them in a box, right? Had an old baseball card out. It had some value fixed to it. And my daughter Lydia was still living at home back then. And she came up to me, and she said, and I quote, Daddy, who's going to get all your stupid baseball cards once you die? And I said, well, certainly not you, kid. (laughs) What a good, honest question. What a good, honest question. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Those baseball cards are 90-year-old pieces of paper. They cost one cent a pack when they came out. They are of value to precious few people. Junk to most. That's why your mother threw yours away. Junk to most. And they're of no eternal value at all. Cards can be stolen, lost in a fire or or flood, damaged. You can just simply misplace them and never see them again. The bottom line is if if my treasure, my hope is placed in something like that, I'm, I'm a fool. It's easy to recognize that collectible pieces of paper are not a wise thing in which to place your eternal trust. But neither is your appearance or your vocation or your social standing or your bank account or your good health. You see, one bad doctor's report can expose the foolishness of trusting in your health. A worldwide depression, World War III, certainly crack your nest egg. A corporate decision could negate your job, no matter how good you are at it. An untrue rumor could wreck your social standing. And if you think being handsome or beautiful is your ticket, I have no encouraging news for you as you age. (laughs) Jesus taught that If we put our trust in things that aren't trustworthy, we're in danger of missing the kingdom of heaven entirely. Instead, he says in verse 20, store up your treasures in heaven. We store up 
treasures in heaven when we decide to live Jesus' way and not our way. Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven runs contrary to the values of this world. It's, it, it's an upside down way of thinking. In the kingdom of heaven, you become rich by giving. You become great by serving. You live by dying to yourself. The bottom line is you build earthly wealth by savvy or accumulation. But you build eternal wealth by sacrifice and through giving. Earthly wealth will die with us. Eternal wealth goes with us. Every time we pray or fast or give or share our faith or invite someone to church, respond to a ping or help somebody in Jesus' name, we store up treasures in heaven. We store up treasures in heaven, particularly if we don't take a selfie and post it. And now Jesus starts saying the kind of stuff that got him killed. Verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart and your thoughts will be. Jesus never pulled punches. Never. Whatever it is that occupies our thoughts, consumes our time, demands our resources, they indicate the places that we are storing treasure. They identify our God's. That depository is either on earth or in heaven. Jesus' counsel is to center our thoughts on him. Expend our time and energy toward the kingdom. Use our finances to further the reach of his church. Jesus taught to offend everything in us that does not uphold the values of the kingdom of God and affirm everything in us that does. Jesus is Teachings don't change. They're canonized. They're in the Bible. No matter what language you read them in, they are the same. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. One of the ways you can tell Jesus is messing with you is when you Read something he said, and you immediately get defensive. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Like, if I read that, and the first thing you said was, well, people need money. Okay, that's a little intense. Of course people need money. Of course you can't help others if you don't have enough yourself. Of course. That's not what Jesus is saying. Sometimes on social media, I'll ask questions. And somebody will go off. I mean, go off. Write a multi-paragraph tirade. What's really interesting is what they're tirading about. They didn't read my question. But my question touched something. Hit a button somewhere because, boy, did they go off. I'm not going to say to that person, you might want to read the question. I'm not going to say that. I got this little thing. It says hide. And I just punch hide. And they go away. <laughs> Don't you wish you could do that in real life? Somebody walks up to you. They're just giving you a bad time. And you just touch them on the shoulder and hide them. And they go away. <laughs> when we read Jesus' stuff, a lot of times it stirs something up within us. 
And when it lights us up, we need to pay attention to it because that's something that's not in alignment with the kingdom of God. You know what? Churches get mad when preachers preach about money because the reality is for many people, money is their God. And when you start talking about it, it gives them career-ending stomach cramps and it just makes them mad. You want to know why people get upset when churches ask people to do something? We're going to we're going to recognize our volunteers next week. All you volunteers, we're going to celebrate you. I got horrible news for everybody. We're going to ask for volunteers the following week. <laughs> right? Celebrate volunteers. Can somebody get me a balloon? Ask for volunteers. Ooh, boy. Boy, I'm pretty busy. You know, clearly busier than all the people that volunteer, right? I mean, gosh, that, that hits awfully close to home. That's the thing about Jesus. He says what he says, and it hits close to home. And when we get defensive about it, we know that he struck a nerve. And that's what we got to pay attention to here. Who is our true God? The dichotomy between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world is the ultimate showdown of allegiances. And Jesus says only one master can win. During our disaffiliation discussions, I had a conversation with a friend was trying to decide whether to stay or leave. They'd been in turmoil about it for some time. And to be honest with you, their constant state of radiation at high frequencies was becoming a bit toxic. And I simply had a conversation and advised, you need to make up your mind on this. You just need to make up your mind. You need to stay or you need to leave, but you can't do both. I don't know if that dichotomy was appreciated, but it truly came from a pastoral heart. I wanted what was best for them. And I needed to protect the mission of this church. You see, trying to live in a double-minded way, trying to live with one foot in the kingdom of this world and one foot in the kingdom of God, trying to both stay and leave is an unsustainable place. And Jesus says to us, you just need to decide. And that's why Jesus made everybody mad because he was always asking people to decide. He was forever reminding them, you can follow me or you can walk away, but you can't follow me and walk away. You gotta decide. The constant call of Yeshua Nesreya to each of us is follow me. Lay aside lesser things and embrace eternal things and you can't do both. Choose. In the early 1800s, camp meetings occurred this time of year all over southern Illinois. One of the most notable in Shiloh, a place called Three Springs. They were a huge social event where isolated people gathered to socialize, sing, and hear the gospel boldly proclaimed. Preachers like Jesse Walker and Peter Cartwright stood up in an impassioned sermons called for people to lay aside their sinful lives and turn to God. It's interesting, the moment of truth was often the celebration of Holy Communion, which happened at the end of things. I've read innumerable first-hand accounts of people at these camp meetings, and when it was time for communion, you had to make a statement. You either had to get up and receive communion or stay where you are, but you couldn't do both. You couldn't do both. You either had to say, I'm a Jesus follower, and I'm going to follow him in communion, or I'm not ready right now, but you couldn't do both. 
It was a crossroads. And you had to go one way or the other way. Some of the most incredible instances were people who celebrated that a certain person in the community got up and took communion and they couldn't believe it. They might have been the biggest reprobate in the whole community. They might have been someone of poor and sullied reputation. They may have been someone that everybody thought was anti-God in every way, but in that moment, God had touched their heart and they stood up and they came down and they took of the bread and they took of the wine and it took people's breath away. In a very real sense, every time we serve communion, we still do that today. You know, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, come. If you're not ready yet, that's okay. But you're going to have to make a choice. As the stewards come forward, I'm going to bless these gifts of bread and wine. And you can either come forward and receive them or not. And that was the point that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. You can pursue the things of this world or you can pursue the values of the kingdom of God. You just can't do both. You can make money your God or you can serve the one true God, but you can't do both. You can make family your God or you can serve the one true God, but you can't do both. You can make religion your God or you can serve the one true God, but you can't do both. It's a crossroads. Can I ask you a question as I close today? Is, is God first in your life, really? Really? Is God first in your life? Does Jesus sit upon the throne of your life? Or are other things sitting there? Receiving communion this morning. We'll be saying with Joshua, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's not just a thing we do. It's a stand that we take. It's a proclamation that we make. I'm going to invite you to lean in and to pray with with me as we bless these elements. Almighty God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the words of Jesus. We even thank you for the way they hurt our ears. For they always challenge us. They always trouble anything in us that does not align with the kingdom of God. So forgive us of our sin. Forgive us when we try to defend what is indefensible in us. And free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Bless, O God, these gifts of bread and wine. Make them for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be Christ's body in this world redeemed by his blood. And as we take of these elements, we do not do so as an empty religious ritual. We do so to take a stand, to proclaim that we have chosen to become disciples of Jesus and we will follow him. Thank you, dear God, for these precious moments in life. And thank you for Jesus, who's always asking us to choose. 
you are good. Your mercy endures forever. We pray it in Jesus' strong name, amen. We serve the elements by what's called intinction, and it just means a little piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and you can take it that way. You don't have to be a member here to receive communion. You just have to be someone who wants to follow Jesus. If you would like gluten-free elements, they're right here. If you'd like prepackaged elements, they are here as well, and we'd be happy to serve those to you. Table set. We've been invited, and now we make a choice. That's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Will you stand and worship and come forward as the ushers bring you?